0: Good morning, church. My name is Chad Allen. I'm the next gen pastor here at the church. And we have been in a series studying the book of Ephesians. And so, if this is your first time, you're just checking it out uh, online, or you're here today, we are thrilled that you're joining us. And today's the perfect day to jump in. Um, because as we've been studying Ephesians, we've looked at the first three chapters, and we're going to be in Ephesians 4 uh, starting in just a few minutes. But uh, the first three chapters are heavy. Uh, they're very theological, doctrinal. And there's the shift all of a sudden that Paul does uh, in going into chapter 4, the shift goes from this heavy uh, abstract theological implications to unpacking everything he just said in the next three chapters uh, to where the shift is now practical, applicable, and um, and so it, the first three we 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 looked and we saw you know God's had a plan for man uh, from the very beginning to redeem those in Christ that we would know Him that we are His workmanship that our identity is found in Him that we were dead in our sin uh, until He gave us life and we talked about the church how the church has been God's plan from the beginning uh, to make Him known. So that he is known and, and that he can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And that's incredible. And so the, the next three chapters, Paul is unpacking, okay, because of all of this that we have looked at, at what it means to be fully human, of what it means to really love, that because of all we've looked at, how does that change the way we live? That our, our lives should be different. And so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. Go ahead. And uh, turn there, and then look at your neighbor and say, let's go. go. Not like go, go, but (laughs) let's continue. Proceed. All right, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness Paul is beginning, um, and the theme of this passage, if we had to break it down, is that the body should be a community of unity. That the church has been called and is designed to be a community of unity. And Paul begins, I want to pull out three different thoughts, key ideas from this, that we know we're called to be a community of unity, but what do we do? And so uh, the very first thought I'd like to point out is is that my life gives evidence to my identity he's talked about our identity in Christ and so there should be a stark difference because of Christ and so he, he is um, ironically in jail. I say ironically because the political structure at that time was the Pax Romana, where the peace of Rome, and ironically, he's in prison for preaching a gospel of peace. But Paul doesn't want the focus to be on him, even though he's writing this from prison. He's incarcerated because he's serving Jesus and living for him. But he, wants the, he turns and shifts the focus towards us, To all who will call on his name and be called by his name. And, And so he says, you know, live a life worthy of the calling. The way you live should be different than the way you lived before Christ. The evidence there that Paul is clearly imprisoned because of his faith. But what if the script got flipped and we were the ones on trial? Would there be enough evidence in our lives that would incarcerate us for Christ? The evidence of our lives is is almost like a court summons, where uh, you have been summoned to court to give witness to give evidence, and and so if you're going to give evidence for your identity, you've got to claim them. And and here's where I want to take a moment and say this in love, okay? We have talked and talked and talked about uh, claiming the title and not owning the position. That is so it's just frustrating. That if you're not going to live for Jesus, then don't call yourself a Christian. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, live for Jesus. Because I say it's so frustrating because we've got people like me trying to keep it on the up and up that want the world to know, but when they hear and see someone who claims the title but doesn't own the position, it's frustrating because we get lumped into that group. So if you're going to claim to be his, then be his. The evidence of our lives will show our identity is in Christ But notice where he went. As soon as he says, live that life worthy of the calling, notice where he went in verse 2. He says, with all humility and gentleness. What's the hardest part for you in this? If you're anything like me, the hardest part in this with all humility and gentleness is the word all. All. He's not saying just in general, be humble and gentle. No, completely, entirely, your whole life should be characterized by humility and gentleness. And if you're like me, then it's not just in general. It's supposed to be entirely. There's a little character flaw that I have, something that I struggle with that that makes this all so difficult. And it's my need to be right. I love being right. I want to be right. I think I'm right. And when I think I'm right, I want everyone to know I'm right. I'm willing to fight for it when I know I'm right, right? (laughs) You see, when we are so focused on being right, we're not going to live with the evidence of humility and gentleness in our lives to the way that we've been called to And this is a struggle, but for the Christian, I want to ask, what's the greater evidence here? Is it more important that you're right or that you're humble and gentle? Yeah. Is it more important that we're right or that we're righteous? The the problem with this is not only do I like to be right, but I can say the right thing but be wrong. You, you you can say the right thing but be totally wrong in in how you're saying it. And so what is the greater evidence? What will people notice? Will they will they notice your humility and gentleness? Will they know will they notice that you're right? Or will they notice your tone? Will they notice your tone? and how you say what you say, that just because you're saying the right thing doesn't mean you're right. And so, when we look at our tone, does that communicate, does our tone communicate gentleness and humility? You know, I heard about a suave young man who, you know, was trying to impress a girl and say something like, ah, oh, time stands still when I gaze into your eyes. When instead, he said, your face could stop a clock. saying the right thing, but the wrong way. It's like I heard two preachers on the side of the road had big signs saying, turn around, the end is near. A car came past, and a few moments later, there was a big splash. One of the preachers looked at the other and said, maybe we should have wrote the bridges out. All right. Silly, I know. All right. Don't unfriend me for that. But listen, we... We can say the right thing, but when we say it the wrong way, we mess everything up. I mean, it's like a kid being forced to apologize. If you've ever seen a a kid hit their sibling, and then what do the parents say? You need to apologize. And so the kid says what? Crosses their arms. Sorry. Like you mean it. Sorry. (laughs) Saying the right thing, but the wrong way. And is that what we're communicating In the evidence of our lives, are we saying the right thing, but not saying it with the heart of Jesus, not saying it with humility and gentleness? Kyle Eidemann says, if you're speaking the truth of Christ, but not speaking in the spirit of Christ, maybe you should sit down and be quiet. If what you're saying is true, but you're not going to say it with the gentleness of Christ, then let somebody else say it. And notice he brings out patience, not just humility and gentleness, but with patience, bearing with one another in love. How patient are you with people? But most of us, by nature, we are not very patient people. I mean, you're at the store, you want the shortest checkout to go fast, Right that we will stress over it and look at the lines and say, which one is faster, and try to go to that one. We are always seeming to keep up a frantic pace. But what about patience as far as enduring long-suffering of patience with people that are challenging? Patience with people that disagree with you. Do you have margin in your life? to embrace and see the infinite value of people that are loved by God, even the ones that disagree? You see, this is what gives evidence that we are living a life worthy of the calling, is not that we're being right all the time, but that we're living with humility, gentleness, patience, just as God's loved us. And God's been patient with us. You know, I've never seen anyone ride it into the kingdom of heaven. I've never seen anyone ride it into following Jesus. That, you know, so-and-so was just right, 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 right. And so I had to, you know, become a part and give my life to Christ. I've never seen that. But I have seen, myself included, story after story of people that have been drawn to Christ by love, by patience, humility, and gentleness. That, that have been drawn to Christ that way, not by being right. And so what's more important, that we're right or righteous? Is it more important that we're preachy with people or patient with people? Now, I'm not saying don't tell the truth or compromise the truth. Don't, don't, don't go there. That's not a, at all what I'm saying. But Jesus came full of grace and truth. I like how someone said grace without truth is not helpful. And truth without grace... Is not hopeful. Grace without truth is not helpful, and truth without grace is not hopeful. You see, Jesus came full of grace and truth. He he was the whole package. And sometimes we leave out some truth in trying to emphasize in grace. That's not right. Well, and sometimes we'll emphasize the grace, but leave out the truth. Neither one is right. Jesus was full of both. And in the truth, we unite, but, but in the grace, we express what God has done for us, the love that He's given to us. And loving can be so difficult and challenging sometimes to, to, to bear patiently with people that just uh, get on our nerves. I remember my second son, Silas, was four when I went to tuck him in at night, and we said our prayers, and he prayed, and, and I'll never forget. He was just four years old, and he prayed, God, help us to love humans we don't really like. Man, that hit home with me. Well, four-year-olds praying, help us to love humans we don't really like. One, he's emphasizing what? They're still humans. Sometimes we forget that and that we are show the greatest evidence of Christ's love in our lives when we love others just as he loved us. But verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is not something that unity doesn't happen accidentally, but rather unity is something that should be pursued aggressively, that we seek unity in order that God would be honored, that our obedience to him will lift him up. You know, the church, I, I love it. That we are full of different people here. That I mean, we, we've got people from all over the, the, the world. We have uh, different cultures, different backgrounds. We have cat lovers. We have dog lovers. All of us have been grafted into the body. That No, we're not all the same, and no, we wouldn't probably roll together if it wasn't for what Christ has done in us. But because of what Christ has done for us and through us and in us, we unite as the body of Christ. Jesus has been doing this since he was here. I mean, have you ever thought about the disciples that he called to follow him? We have, we have Matthew, who is a tax collector. Tax collectors were hated in that day. They, tax collectors were seen as traitors, lovers of Rome, not Israel. So Jesus called a tax collector to be a part of this posse. But, but that wasn't it. He also called a guy named Simon, the zealot. That's someone who was zealous for, the overthrow, for overthrowing Rome. Could even be violent. And Jesus called Simon and Matthew to follow him. They would not have had anything in common. They probably would have really disliked each other. But you see, that's the beauty of what Christ does in our lives is all of that becomes secondary. We see the unity in the body brings us together and lifts him up. So the unity, this community of unity is fueled by the Spirit. But what are you doing in order to maintain that unity? What are you doing to maintain the unity in the body of Christ? Our love should be loud, and that is what gives tremendous evidence for the calling we have received. Verse 4, he says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, I think the second key thought in this passage would be that I am part of the one. There was a lot of ones in there. In our our development as humans, we go from a state of complete dependence to independence. And the growing up years, teenage years, we start to see this really emerge in adolescence that, that independence is something we want because when we're independent, we can be individualistic where it's all about me it's all what I want and if we're not careful we will bring this into our walk with Christ and that we want what we want above everything else that we don't look to the interests of others but that we try to even see God as the way we are someone said that that God created man and man returned the favor but that we try to define God by our standards. And we'll try to say, yeah, God God likes what I like and God wants what I want, right? I remember growing up, I played football in high school and coach He let the players, we could say anything we wanted. You know, there was no words off limits, except one thing, and that was we could not take the Lord's name in vain. And his reasoning was because he's on our side. Now, I've had a lot of teams over the years that, that, man, they must use the Lord's name in vain a lot, you know? <laughs> They're not doing that great. But I don't think that we can say God is on our side, not their side, and that we say God is justifying our cause, not them, because there might be brothers and sisters on the other team too. Are you following me? And so we can't make God align to our ideals and define him by what we want. This isn't like Baskin-Robbins Christianity. You know, your 31 flavors, just choose what you want. It's not like a cafeteria theology where you just go through and pick out what you want here and there. But rather, God is who God says he is. He is not defined by us. We do not make him be like us, but rather, we should strive to be like him. And in our society today, there. There is a lot of division. We're talking about unity. We see the opposite all around us. And that there are are Christian brothers and sisters on opposite sides of various issues. And if we're not careful, though, the the divisiveness will creep into the church. I mean, maybe you have some feelings about this. Division, we see it. And here's a few examples of division. Masks. Mask or no mask. Vaccine or no Vaccine political positions, parties, movements, even the national anthem, standing or kneeling, the posture of the national anthem. We we have all these things that, that, that are so important to us, and we know we're right, right? We know we're right. And we forget the humility, the gentleness, the patience. We forget the evidence that we are living worthy to the calling. I know there's Christians on, on about every side of these issues, and if we're not careful, it will creep into the church and divide the body of Christ. And we cannot afford to let that happen. Because in history, it, 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 the history books aren't gonna, are, are going to focus on the effects and results of all these issues on the church, where we make the secondary issue primary, that instead of pursuing unity in the body, we are pursuing being right. God has called us to, 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 to walk together. It's like Brian Kincaid last week said, there's large print and small print. The large print we know that God has called us to love God and love people. And the small print's all these secondary issues that, that aren't as important as the unity. Does that make sense? Because the unity is what? So that the world will know what's more important than that. Not our little position, not our opinion. So, I and I hope you know I'm saying all this in love, but but we have to intentionally, aggressively pursue community. And so, how are you doing that? What are you doing to maintain the unity? And, And why is unity so important? Why is unity such a big deal? Well, number one, so the world would know, but two, biblical fellowship can only occur. When there is unity, biblical fellowship, what I mean by that is is fellowship's not just you know coffee, donuts, and saying, how are you doing? That that fellowship, biblical fellowship, goes deeper. And so when we ask, how are you doing? Yeah, we want to know. It's not just a casual greeting, but but we want more than that. We don't want to stay on the surface level. We, We want to know, how is God working in your life? How is God moving? How is he stirring your hearts? And what are you doing about it? You see, fellowship, discipleship, and care, that we need the community to unify and be around us to help us become more like Jesus. And so, uh, if you're not in a community group, get in one. It's all about doing life together. We're stronger when we are uni- united. And that fellowship will go to a deeper level. We just don't have time to do fellowship deep here on Sunday morning. That's where the community group comes in. All of the one another commands, encourage one another, pray for one another, all the one another commands are, are, are can only be done in community. In verse seven, Paul says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Verse 7, this brings me to the third, my uh, third thought that I think sticks out is that we have been gifted to serve. Congratulations. You're gifted. You have been gifted to serve. Notice verse 7, that, that he says, but grace was given to each one of us. Each one of us. Who's each one of us? All of us. Every one of us. So, guess what? You have been gifted to serve. For you to sit there and say, hey, I'm not gifted in anything. Do you know what you're saying? You're you're saying Jesus isn't the Messiah because this messianic prophecy just says that each one of us have been given a gift. So, for you to sit there and say, I don't have a gift means Jesus isn't the Messiah. Well, I know none of us would say that. And so maybe instead of saying, I don't have a gift, saying, I don't know what my gift is yet, yet, because you're going to find out. We, we, we all have been given a gift, and gifts don't just come that you are uh, you know, amazing right away. Gifts need to be developed. You know, when a preacher starts out preaching, he's not Billy Graham from the get-go, you know, he doesn't. He, he, he doesn't. Uh, uh, he develops his gift over time, right? I'm still developing, so give me some patience here. That let's use the example. Let's say you've been given the gift of hospitality. You're developing too. That that the first time you do it, you decide to serve as a greeter to use your gift, and, and you're not sure who comes here, who doesn't come here, so you're not sure whether to say, "Hey, welcome for the first time," or "or welcome back." And but you you serve again, and again and the next time, and the next time, to where you get more comfortable and you get better at using your gift. So how do you develop your gift? You use it. If you don't use it, you lose it. And that each one of us has been gifted to serve, that, think about it, Luke 2, 52 says that even Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, favor among, that, that if Jesus can grow, then don't you think all of us can grow? That... It's not about being perfect, but it's about using the gift. And we get the focus so wrong on this so many times that we focus on the gift and what we have or what they have, what we want, what they have, or um, things like that that we miss. It's the giver that we should focus on and that your giver is your creator, and he has designed you and called you to serve. He will equip you and empower you. He's not going to leave you out to dry. And so... uh, developing our gifts, using them for them. Why are we given gifts? It's for the unity of the body. It's for the betterment of the body. It's for the growing of the body. It's for others, not just ourselves. And you see, this is where we can get it so wrong. This is where church is a we thing, not a me thing. Church is a we thing, not a me thing. When we make it a me thing, we make a mess. Oh, we mess it up bad. I like how one community group says around here, they say, united, we are ignited. United, we are ignited. The people in your life surrounding you um, should be picking you up, building your faith, encouraging you, being there for you. And that's when church is a we thing, we get that. When it's a me thing, we don't. And, and it's really amazing that God d- decided to use us. Really, it's amazing that God d- chooses to use us at all because, frankly, He had other options. But He chose us. So, congratulations, you're gifted. You get to serve in the body of Christ. You, it, I need to be surrounded and grounded by fellowship of believers. I need to be a part of community. I, I need, because when I'm by my own in isolation, I make a mess of, I make a train wreck real quick. I, I remember first full-time ministry. This is going back a little bit. I was a youth minister and, and uh, you know, all I did was love the kids and focus on the youth. And I loved it. But the senior minister would occasionally say, hey, Chad, I want you to do something that, that wasn't related to the youth at all. And one day he asked me to go see a lady named Phyllis. Now, Phyllis was dying of cancer and hospital was um, a long drive away. And so um, I wasn't the spiritual giant that you see today. I, 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 was, I was quite selfish, honestly. And, and the, whole, the whole time I'm thinking, man, I really don't want to do this. It has nothing to do for it. I get nothing out of it. But I'll never forget going into that hospital room and seeing Phyllis laying on the bed. Greet me with a smile. Here she is. Her time is short. She not only smiles, but I kid you not, from the moment I walked into the room till I left, man, I felt, I felt like the most important person in the world. She asked me questions. Uh, and, and uh, she made me laugh, and, and just the whole time, instead of me really ministering to her, I walked away like she ministered to me. Amen. You see, that's when church is a we thing, not a me thing, that God gets the glory. So how? How is your life looking? How is the evidence in your life for the unity of the body of Christ? He is our liberator that he has set the captives free, we're the captives, that he took captivity captive, that he conquered everything to set us free, that we have this bond of peace, that Jesus is both our peacemaker and our peace. We should want the world to know. So I've got three challenge questions for this week. I want you to ask yourself, question number one, What evidence will your life show this week that your identity is in Christ? What is it that you're going to do this week that would be evidence for your identity in Christ? Question number two, what gift were gifts? What gift has God given you to serve others? And Question three is, how is God stirring in your heart? What is it that you feel God leading you to do in the body? Church, we're a community of unity. We're not perfect. We're far from it. But we know the one who is. And we know that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine through the church. That's his plan. Oh, there's so much here that next week you have to come back, man. We're going to be talking about getting busy. You know what it means. We're gonna be looking, there's so much work for the church to do. Don't you wanna be a part of it? I mean, can you believe we get to do this? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers and for being so good to us. Father, we, we know that life's not about us, but it is about you. And so, Father, we pray that everything we say and do will honor and glorify you in the name of Jesus that we pray and all who agree, say amen. Love you, church.